0: It's a joy to continue in our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. This morning, our reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Church, hear the word of your God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow, that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase... And words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the only one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Join me in prayer. Our great God, we trust that you are with us this morning. You always are with your people through your word, and we praise you for that great privilege. In Christ, we pray, we thank you again for being our only mediator between God and man. And now, as you exercise in particular your, your office of prophet, as you come before your people giving us your word, I pray, God, that we would see it as the very word of the living God who has died for our sins and risen from the grave now to uh, be enthroned. And so, God, as you exercise your ministry of uh, prophet now, we ask that the word would be clear to us, We ask that it would be powerful to us, that it would comfort us, and it would convict us and challenge us, Lord. Uh, We do not have the ability, Lord, to understand this word by ourselves. We need to be, um, we need to have our minds illuminated by your spirit. So we pray, God, send your spirit in a quickening manner today, inflame our affections for you enlighten our minds to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ today, even in the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, we pray that you would do this all for the sake of your glory and our spiritual well-being. In Christ's name, amen. You can remain there in Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes, as a book, uh, you should know this by now, is teaching us how to live life uh, backwards. Uh, that is, that you ought to live life in light of uh, the end. That uh, you live not uh, forward, uh, uh, particularly planning each step, and then if each step doesn't come along, you are frustrated with God. No, Ecclesiastes says, no, you need to start with death, because that's the only thing certain in this life are going to happen to you. You don't know what's going to happen to you. So start with death. Work your life backwards and value those things God gives you in this Havel life. The short, brief, misty, vaporous life. That is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. And it's as a it's somewhat like a portrait uh, book. It's been giving you pictures of what life looks like under the sun in particular areas. So in chapter 1, it says you and I are on the merry-go-round of life, and you're going to die, and the world's going to spin, and it doesn't remember you. And you're going to keep going and going, and uh, there it is. That's life. It's, it's just there. God has given it to us to enjoy There's the Havel of wisdom and and pleasure, chapter 1 and chapter 2. The Havel of living wisely. It's brief, it's short, it's good, but it's just not going to last forever. You're not going to be wise forever. There's the Havel of toil. Work is a gift of God, but you can't expect much from it. It's going to let you down. Just know that it's short as well. There's a time for everything, chapter 3, in the next portrait in this portrait book. There's a time for everything time to love and a time to hate. time for war and a time for peace. There's a a time for every tragedy. And God is going to make everything beautiful in its own time. We don't know how he's going to do that, but he's going to do that. We trust by faith in our great God who's good and wise. Chapter 4 talked about all of the challenges that uh, we see under this world. Will he bring everything Will he make everything uh, beautiful in its time? Chapter 4 says, yes, indeed, but it's still difficult. Life is still hard. And God is making everything beautiful in its time. So we get to chapter 5, and the next picture you're going to see in this portrait book, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is uh, church under the sun. And the question that I've been asking myself all week is, what does it look like for Havel... To meet the church. How do we live life under the sun? This brief, short life uh, within the church. That's that's the thesis. That's the theme. The preacher Solomon wants us to wrestle with. What does your life look like under the sun, but not in pleasure and not in work, but in the church? What does it look like? And he answers that uh, in multiple ways. This is still the introduction. But he says here in verses 1a, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Uh, Guard your steps. Shamar. Do what the priests do in the temple. Be careful when you go in. Be careful when you come in to worship and you pick up a liturgy. Uh, Watch out. The priests um, in the uh, ancient church, Synagogues, they had an iron plate and the priests would wash their feet before they would enter into the synagogue because they had to do with God that day. Guard your steps, he says. Your steps, the way you walk, your, your lifestyle is an idiom for your character. Watch your life. Guard your steps, he says, when you go to the house of God. So when you come to church, what does life as Havel look like? What should we guard against? Now some would say, um, guard your steps when you go to the house of God because God is holy. And that may be the sense here that uh, Exodus 3.5, um, God says to Moses, you know, you need to take off your sandals because where you're standing is holy ground. Is that the sense that Ecclesiastes 5.1 is about? Is that why we should guard our steps? I think yes. But is that what this passage is about? I'm not too sure to me. The preacher says guard your steps when you go to the house of God, because you're going to encounter some things there that you're not going to want to pick up. There's going to be some dangers. In the church that you're gonna need to be aware of. You're gonna need to guard. Did you hear me? There's gonna be things, not outside the church, but in the church, that you're going to need to guard your steps from when you go to the house of God. I have three, they just come right from the text and we'll follow along verse by verse. Number one, guard your steps from religious hypocrisy. Guard your steps from religious hypocrisy. The preacher writes to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they are doing or that they are doing evil. This phrase, the sacrifice of fools, do you see it there? That's used throughout the scriptures, Isaiah one eleven, Amos five twenty-one. It's the idea of coming to church, in this case coming to the temple, as a pretense. There's no religion of the heart. There's no affection for God. The mind does not care about his law. He just comes to offer the sacrifice of fools because that's that's what he knows to do. He just knows to, to be right to offer sacrifices. After all, this is the ceremonial law, God. So this is what I do. I come to the temple, I come to church, and I just offer sacrifices. I'm here. But it's a foolish sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of a fool because there is nothing inside of substance, you see. Nothing in his soul that wants to commune with God, so he does not know what they are doing that is actually evil. Guard your steps, he says, from religious hypocrisy. From just being here, from offering the sacrifice of fools, from the external appearances. Jesus says to the hypocrites of his day, the religious elite, Matthew 23, you know, all you care about is the outside of the cup. (laughs) That's the only thing you care about. Is what you look like. The external appearances by which you walk in those doors. You need to care about the inside of the cup, Jesus says. What's on the inside? You know, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, outweighs the ceremonial law of God. You can do all the right things. You can have it all together, buttoned up, look nice, come into church, have all the answers. But if all you care about is the outside of the cup you are offering a sacrifice of a fool. It is the heart of God or the heart of your own heart that God looks at. This is juxtaposed to what we see so often by the psalmist turn your bibles to psalm 51. Psalm 51 verses 16 to 17. This is what we ought to be about. Psalm 51, 16 to 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Wait a minute. You are the one who established the ceremonial law. You are the one who established the burnt offerings. The moral law of God outweighs all of that. So he says the sacrifices of God ultimately are what? Are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You can despise what I offer on the outside, though good it looks externally. But you will not despise my soul when it is broken over my sin, when I am contrite over what I am and what I have done. That, he says, you will not despise. We are not here, beloved, to simply play the Christian game. We are here to unvarnish ourselves before the living God. What are you and what am I that God would come after us in His Son. And then establish a community of faith, the church by which we can come every Lord's Day and worship and gather and have fellowship with us. We are not here to offer the sacrifice of of a fool, but to offer our hearts before God. Take my life, we sing. Take my life and let it be. Consecrate it all to thee. We're here to unvarnish ourselves before God. Don't you love that uh, story our Lord teaches in Luke 18? You can go there as well. Every time I read this story, I read it as if it's the first time I've read it. The Pharisee and tax collector, Luke 18. Verse nine, he told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. They went to church one day. Two guys went to church. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One a religious man, one a great sinner. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this this tax collector over here. And then what does he say? I fast twice a week. Here's the sacrifice of a fool. I give tithes of all that I get. I do this, I do that. And if I'm not careful and if you are not careful, this is what you and I can be. This is what we can turn into. Of course I'm on the worship team. Of course I'm up here behind the pulpit. Look at me. I got it all together. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes and Jesus is saying, you don't have it all together. If you think you have it all together, you're going to offer a sacrifice of a fool. You're here, beloved, to unvarnish your heart before God. And to live by faith in him. And look at this tax collector, isn't he wonderful? Standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Hopefully you can hear Psalm 51 behind this. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man understood that his only hope in life and in death is the blood of the Savior. The only only reason he's at the temple is not because of what he's done, is not because of who he is, And not because of where he's going. He understands that the only reason he's there is because Jesus warrants him to be there by his blood. His only hope in life and in death is the mercy of God. That's what he gets. Sin needs the quenching of Christ's blood, not the concealing of the religious garb. It doesn't need that. When you understand, beloved, that this life is a vapor, you don't have time, nor the desire to come every Lord's day and play games. Life is too short. I'm here to unvarnish myself before God and before His people. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer of someone who understands what living life backwards looks like. So guard your steps from religious hypocrisy. And yes, it is in this church. And it's in every church. Back to Ecclesiastes, if you will. Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, Secondly, you need to guard your steps from hasty speech. Guard your steps from religious hypocrisy and guard your steps from hasty speech. I have four phrases I just want to draw your attention to. Uh, Verse 1, draw near to listen you tell me what the theme of these phrases are. Draw near to listen. Be not rash with your mouth. That's two. Three, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Four, let your words be few. Catch a theme? When Ecclesiastes Meets ecclesiology, when life as a vapor meets the church, you'll want to listen to God more than you'll want to listen to yourself. That's the idea. You won't want to keep talking, you'll want to listen. Your words will be few. Your opinions, just your opinion. You'll want to listen to Christ, not yourself. You'll be careful of hasty speech. When Arthur writes the religion of fools is an unstoppable mouth. Yeah. That was my reaction as well. Patience to the fool is a nuisance? Wait. What are you talking about? We got things to do. Patience to the fools and nuisance. Waiting, restraining one's opinion. That's for cowards. That's for cowards. We gotta go somewhere. I got an opinion I gotta share. Restrain my mouth. Let my words be few. What are you talking about? I got things to say. Fools are always talking, they're never listening, they're always going first, their opinions on first principles and their opinions on preference or matters of indifference, there's no distinction to a fool. I'll I'll give my opinion with as much conviction on first principles as I do with things of preference. That's a fool. So they talk. Fools always talk. They have an unstoppable mouth. They have hasty speech. They they are hasty to utter a word before God. They they come near to talk, not listen. In their dreams their daydreamings, their thoughts, well, they assume that their thinking is synonymous with God's thinking, so they're just always talking. After all, to wait and to restrain one's opinion, oh, that's cowardly. Proverbs 20, Proverbs 17, turn there. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. Whoa. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Someone who, someone who raises in our vernacular the temperature in the room is a fool. By and large. But whoever restrains his his words has knowledge. Those who think, those who are quiet, those are the ones you've got to be worried about. Verse 28, even a fool keeps silent is, is considered wise. <laughs> when he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Even the world knows this, right? You're at work and someone's always talking. There goes Joe again, talking and talking, and he keeps talking. But he who is silent, and Mary over there is always silent. that's probably because she's wise. Even the world knows this. she's deemed intelligent by restraining her words. One more, Proverbs 10:19. Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. This is, this, is the, this is the power of wisdom literature, is it not? Just like a sucker punch to the gut. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. If you want to be seen to be a fool, just keep talking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. You draw near to listen, let your words be few. Let your words be few. I tell this to the residency guys all the time. They're probably tired of me talking about this, but I've said it to them, and I'm going to say it to you. Be slow to draw ultimate conclusions. Be slow to draw ultimate conclusions. Keep learning. Keep studying. Sit with the word, meditate, pray, bring it before Christ. Continue to think. Am I thinking about this right? Am I hearing that person right? Or have I jumped to conclusions? Have I assumed things? Continue to think, continue to to meditate, draw near to listen, let your words be few. And it was amazing in COVID, every Christian had their PhD in virology. It was stunning. We knew everything. We had never experienced a pandemic, never. We had never felt the tension of the state with the church and in a matter of weeks we knew exactly what to do exactly because we read some study and we listened to a youtube clip let your words be few james 1:19 james is after hebrews If you're turning there, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear means that you're actually listening to the person who's talking, not preparing an answer. You're slow to speak, And you're slow to anger. This is maturity in the church. This is what maturity looks like when Ecclesiastes hits Ecclesiology. You're patient, you're wise, and you're slow to speak. Guard yourself from religious hypocrisy and guard yourself from hasty speech. Third, guard yourself from careless promises. Back to Ecclesiastes 5. Guard yourself from careless promises. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. and Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when your, when your dreams increase and words grow uh, many, there is Havel, but God is the one you must fear. Vowing, making vows, oaths, promises, pledges. What is this all about? Well, I was stretched this week to study what is vow or an oath or promises. I'm certainly not an expert in it, but let me just give you what I um, extracted. From this week. A vow. Let me let's start with a definition of terms, shall we? A vow is a solemn promise or assertion by which a person binds himself to an act, service, or condition before God. That's a vow. Let me say that again: a solemn promise or assertion by which a person binds himself to an act service, or condition before God. So there's three features, like what the, what the preacher is talking about here in, in a vow. It's a, it's a solemn promise. It's a weighty promise. It's significant. It's not the type of promise, you know, we're going to go to, you know, get cheeseburgers after service today type of thing. You say to your kids, that's not what a vow is. A vow is a solemn promise, a weighty, significant promise. Secondly, you're binding, uh, you're b- with, by which a person binds himself, okay? You're binding yourself to your word uh, before God, all right? And it's also talking about um, uh, binding yourself to an act or a service. So a vow speaks particularly of behaviors. Um, uh, the idea here of uh, what, your life, what, you, what you want your life to be like. A promise before God. Uh, Joel Beakey uh, speaks about a promise or a vow he made. Some of you who are at the conference have heard this. Uh, Joel Beakey, years ago um, in Latvia, I've heard this story many times. He speaks about, um, in Latvia, teaching, uh, sharing the gospel, coming back to his hotel room. And um, he's opening his hotel room uh, door, and two members of the mafia stick a knife at his throat, uh, bind Dr. Joel Beaky, send him inside. Uh, I can't remember if they, if they you know, covered his head or not. I can't remember, but they bind his hands and feet. He can't move, and he's lying in the, in the room of his hotel room in Latvia, mafia screaming at him with a knife to his throat. And Beaky talks about, when I laid my eyes on Christ and began to pray to him, I felt a sense of peace uh, with what was going on in my life. That's amazing. When I took my eyes off of Christ and what He is and what He's doing at this moment, I began to be afraid of what's taking place. Uh, long story short, they leave. They save his life. He vows. This is why it's relevant. He vows to God that day that he's going to spend his life giving himself to reformed experiential ministry. And he has made true on that vow. That's a vow. You're vowing to God a solemn promise by which your behavior or your thought is going to change. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23, just for a moment. Deuteronomy 23, 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have, here's the key word, voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So again, a vow is a solemn promise that you have voluntarily promise to him or before him um, some type of change you want to happen in your life. We take vows often in our uh, lives. We have public vows of baptism. That's a vow. When you get baptized, you're vowing to God or before God in the midst of his people that you've come to Christ by faith alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, you say. Simply to the cross I cling. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the vow of baptism. You're vowing that you've come to Christ and Christ alone and to live for him. Wedding vows. That's a vow, a solemn promise you're voluntarily doing on behalf of yourself and before God. I, thee, Orion, take thee, Jamie, to be my uh, wedded wife. Um... I don't remember all of it. Um, Maybe I should have gone over that. Um, To be my wife and to have and to hold. And boy, I got got work to do. Um, But you take a wedding vow, right? A marriage vow. Uh, Isn't this a great time? For you it is. (laughs) Membership. Pastoral vows. These are vows you take before God. In the midst of God's people. Elders, you've promised, you've vowed to God. On that day when we brought the members up, you vowed to them that you'd lead, know, protect, and feed the flock. You vowed to do that. And Ecclesiastes is saying, this is a very serious thing. If you don't do it, God is going to hold you accountable. Members. You've, you've taken membership vows. Do you remember them? You've promised to walk side by side with the members of this church to refrain from gossip and envy and slander and malice. You've vowed that to God. You've taken those vows that you'd be someone trustworthy of sound doctrine. You've said, I believe in the statement of faith of this church. I'm going to sign that covenant. You vowed to God that stance so that why? Well, if someone needs someone to, to come to, to hear of sound doctrine, well, I know I can go to any member of this church because they vowed to God that they maintain sound doctrine in their life. There's personal vows that you can make. You know, some of the songs that we sing, some of the lyrics, those are, in a way, if you mean them, the private personal vows to God. Take my life again, take my life, let it be consecrated all to Thee. Really? It's a vow before God. Let me illustrate this, and then uh, we'll be done. But um, uh, Jonathan Edwards—he made some personal vows. Seventy of them, actually. Seventy resolutions he wrote. December eighteenth, seventeen twenty-two. One of America's greatest theologians and authors and writers and pastors. He's a young pastor in New York at the time, 19 years old, December 18th, 1722. And he picks up quill and pen, or quill and paper, and uh, to write resolutions, he's inflamed with the glory of God. And that night he writes 35 resolutions on December 18th, 1722. I'm repeating that date for a reason. A month later, January 20th, Edwards finds himself in despair. 35 resolutions, vows to God of what he will be and how he will live. Who's read these resolutions before? They are amazing. The type of life he wants to live to the glory of God. But on January 20th, 1723, as the calendar turns, Edwards is in despair. Why? Why? because of the spiritual pressure to live up to his personal vows. That summer, by the time of that summer, he ends up writing 35 more, 70 in all. He stops that summer almost abruptly as he started writing the resolutions. Here's what he says. He's okay, He's 40 now, and he's looking back on his 19-year-old self. This is in his personal narrative. He says, I sought an increase of grace and holiness, that I might live a holy life with vastly more earnestness than I ever did before. That's what he's talking about when he's 19. I used to be continually examining myself and studying and contriving for ways and means how I should live wholly with far greater diligence and earnestness than I ever pursued before. And we're all like, yes, that's what I want to do, too. I want to make those resolutions, too. And then he says this. But with too great a dependence on my own strength. Which afterwards proved a great damage to me. What he sought to do when he was 19, though good in themselves, became in the end an instrument of discouragement and despair because he forgot the grace by which he lives out those resolutions. Jonathan Edwards and Calvary Redeeming Grace need more than 70 vows to Christ. Do you know what you need more than careless promises? Christ. That's what you need. That's what church under the sun is all about. Guard your steps from religious hypocrisy. Guard your steps from hasty speech. And guard your steps from unrealistic vows. Because what you and I need most is not the chatter, And it's not the veneer. What you and I need most is Christ and Christ alone. That's what church under the sun is all about. Let's pray. Our great God, we do need Christ. And by grace through faith, we have him. Oh, do we have him. We have him in the gospel. We don't have him in the law. Oh, no. That's nowhere to find Christ. Nothing we do. Nothing in my hands I bring. Oh, simply to the cross I cling. We have Christ. Or better yet, Christ has us. You have held us fast. Oh, God, we pray for you to continue to hold us, for our grip is so weak and our vowing so feeble and short-lived. O oh God, make us yours. Amen.